What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Nerd Wide Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Haynes, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chris Rivers. Now, Chris, how was your week? Did you get any better sleep this week? Uh, were able to relax anymore? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I've still been cutting short the, the gaming at night yeah. just to, to get more rest because I've still got the cough. Mm. It's... I'm not going to change any this week because, you know, it was icy and uh, not really snowy and sleety last week. And then, so it was in the 30s and high 20s on Friday. And then we got, we're supposed to be in the, the 60s all this week. So, I mean, we just can't win. It's it's a never-ending battle, really. <laughs> it's always. I can't stand it. How'd your um, week go? It was okay. It was, I was real busy. Like, I just, not... I was just abnormally busy for yeah. work and even in the home, just doing a whole bunch of stuff around the house. Like I, it was one of those weeks too where nothing had my interest on video games until yesterday, and I started playing Skyrim again. And I played it some today and some yesterday. I had a wedding last night, and then just a whole bunch of different things we had to get done around the house. And but this week's not going to be that much different because of the Super Bowl this week. Oh, that was a big reason uh, the week was busy. Fury got snipped this week. And, of course, he is already here trying to tell me he's fine. So, there he is. <laughs> and my camera goes out at the same time. Yep. So, that's usually Just how it works. Camera. Yeah. So, what we will do... Let me close this door real quick so it's not as loud. All right. So what I'll do is we'll talk here in a little bit, and I'll reset the unplug and turn on the camera. It'll be fine. Not a big deal. Quick. Okay. okay. We yeah. We did get some gaming news. Um, we could save it, but I don't really. Yeah. While you're doing that, let's go ahead and throw it out there. Uh, MLB The Show 23 announced their pre-order with a six. Oh yeah, I saw that. Are you are you okay with who the cover is? Yeah, they've, they've actually got two, right? you got oh. Jazz Chisholm of the Marlins, uh, and then you've got the the Captain's Edition that features Derek Jeter. So, um, yeah, $100 for the Deluxe Digital, I think. So, huh. I'll be... Uh, I'll be picking that up. I've got $75 in PlayStation gift cards set aside already, so... Already ready to go, then. Yeah. I... Cause it's, it's actually coming back to Game Pass this year, too. They yep. announced as well, so I was like, well, I'll play a week of it, maybe, and be kind of done with it. NBA 2K, I've played a little bit more, but nothing like outrageously crazy with it. I've got a bunch of new packs and stuff like that. But right. I haven't really played. I think the they call it clutch time, where it's you just play a period and it's it. It's just like a quick and easy game. Because the other ones yeah. take like thirty minutes to play, and I'm just like, uh, I'm just trying to get a quick game in. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna unplug one more thing. Uh oh. Uh, that should have fixed it though. Technical difficulties. It's always something, I'm telling you. You do 100 episodes, and on the first one back is when it starts going crazy. 
There you so, go. There we go. All right, quick housekeeping. Hey, Tyler, can can you turn the camera back off, please? Oh, unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> quick housekeeping. This is our hundred and one episode of the Nerdwide Podcast. Episode one hundred will be up by the time you are listening to this. So make sure you tune in, especially to like the first 15, 20 minutes of of us going down memory lane there, and seeing where we've come as a podcast. Uh, speaking of, don't forget to subscribe either to our YouTube or podcasting service of your choice for the show. If you enjoy it, make sure you let us, leave us a thumbs up or give us a good review on whatever podcasting app you use. If you don't enjoy what you see or hear, make sure you leave us a comment and let us know how we can improve the show. Can't improve or fix anything if you don't let us know. And if you want to do more, you can always go to patreon.com slash nerdwide. Three different tiers for three different monetary values for all sorts of goodies on those. Chris, have you been watching anything crazy this week? Um, no, I don't think I really watched anything out of the ordinary. I'm staying caught up now on some of the broadcast shows, but yeah, yeah I haven't. I think, well, besides The Bachelor, we're down all of our shows this week. We just haven't know. been, we haven't watched a lot of TV and I haven't even watched a lot of TV this week, which is odd. I mean, work was a little busy, I had a bunch of meetings, but it's very odd for me to not watch as much TV as I'd want to, but our two TV shows could not have been any better. One was a penultimate, and the other one came out of left field, and I was not expecting to be that good as it was. And of all the praise it's getting, it's it's just remarkable. But we'll talk about that once we get to Last of Us, which I'm really excited about tonight's episode because they've got Je- Jeffrey Pierce, um, who plays Tommy in the game. He's playing a character tonight on the show. So I'm like, huh, pretty cool how they're doing that. Do we have any idea when Troy Baker's episode is? I, I know, but I think it's not until the later half of the season because okay. he's a part of a certain group that's in the at the last two hours of the game. So that's all I want to say because I don't want to future spoil it for, for other people who you know may not play the games, which I talked to somebody last night, uh, one of Jamie's nephews who's watching it, and he's not played the games, and he's loving it. He said, this is one of the best shows. I'm like, yeah, buckle up, though, because it's about to get wild. So uh, before we get to The Last of Us, though, let's talk about National Treasure, Edge of History, the penultimate episode nine. We're going back to Laughing Place by Bill Galsell for the recap. Billy has outsmarted Jess and her father, Raphael, and captured them both, having listened to both, having listened through his shoe. Uh, Billy knows about Raphael's journal, and the situation looks grim. Even Casey tells Jess that she should have stayed with an ally with Billy. Things would be looking better for her. But Jess has successfully hidden Ethan's phone away from Billy. Orin and Liam are at the FBI and have told their side of the story to Agent Ross. Orin is wondering if this is the right decision while Liam tries to remind him that they had no choice. Liam believes that Ross will find Miles' body and thus prove their story is true. Ross grimly tells him that Miles' body is still missing, as well as the door to the clue room. Ross is trying to understand what is going on and shows her skepticism in the face of no evidence. Warren finally admits that Billy kidnapped him and is willing to have a polygraph test to prove his story. Tasha and Ethan are also being led to the FBI building where Orrin has passed his polygraph test. Interrogating Tasha, Ross brings up the activist history of her grandmother and tries to appeal to Tasha but it connected to her family roots. That is a little out left field and didn't really push the story forward, I didn't, to me at least. Uh, just kind of showed why Tasha's not really the best with the feds, which is fine, but I really didn't see that other than just like filler. Maybe it comes up later, but 
telling Tasha that Oren passed the t- polygraph, Ross looks for help to Tasha to help Jess. Despite Ross's attempt to connect, Tasha's unwilling to admit to anything. Trying to show she is for real, Ross lets them go and leaves her card for Tasha to call her any time, should she change her mind. Meeting up with Liam and Oren, they fill in the two about Raphael's plan uh, to sneak across the border with Jess, only to, fo- only to wonder what has happened to Jess and her dad. The group realizes that Billy, Billy has Jess and Liam wants to go after them. Tasha has a plan to track Jess's phone and the group leaves the police impound lot. Billy knows that Raphael knows where to find the treasure once they get to Vicksburg and she is searching through his journal because Billy believes the answers can be found in the book. Raphael is not cooperating while he is distracting Billy and Casey. Jess is trying to get access to the phone so that her friends can track her. As Billy finds the hidden clue in the book, Jess gains control of her phone. Agent Ross goes to lunch with Zeke, and he is admittedly nervous. Ross is also a little annoyed by the dead end she has hit with the case. Ross shows her evidence and wonders what to do. Zeke tells her to go find Billy and to not waste her time at lunch with him. She tells him about Miles' missing body, and Zeke suggests that they could always go over to the crime scene and search for bloodstains. I like these two. And I'm really, really, we're doing spoilers here and future spoilers for the episode, but I'm really glad he was not the bad guy. Because I had, like, he's getting too close and he's working with Billy vibes from him. But I'm glad to see that's not the case. While Tasha's works her techno magic, Liam and Ethan commiserate over what has happened to Jess, which was very weird. On board Billy's plane, Casey discovers Jess's phone and pulls a SIM card out just after an SOS was sent from the device. Billy has an idea about what to do with the hidden item in Raphael's journal. Seeing Jess's medallion, Billy opens the necklace up and discovers that the medallion is an ancient compass. When they are close to the treasure, the compass should direct them to it. Very cool. Very subtle and very well, you know, very well done. Ethan's ex-girlfriend Mina gets the SOS on her phone from Ethan, worried that something happened to him. She calls Oren and tells him about the message, only to speak with Ethan. She tells him about the SOS message and the group determines it must be from Jess. Sending them the location pin, the friends learn that Jess is on Billy's plane and Tasha tracks the destination. Ross and Zeke enter the Sadusky home to look for blood from Miles' body. Little do they know that Billy's goons are on the way back to the house. Surprise, Ross pulls her gun to arrest the suspects and a shootout commences. With one suspect dead, the other escapes, and Ross is still at a standstill with the investigation. On Jess's trail, Oren and Liam look through the last uh, gift given by his grandfather. With Oren's help, Liam deciphers the clues left by Peter Sadusky. With only a few moments to themselves, Raphael warns Jess about the traps waiting for them in the Devil Swamp. While Raphael is fearful, Jess plans to use the traps for them to escape Billy. Tasha discovers that Billy has her own private security force supporting her. Wondering where they are going, Oren guesses that it's the Devil Swamp because he has heard about how it's Mississippi's reverse version of the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, that was a little uh, too convenient, you know. A lot of these other things, I I could see how they point to it, but uh, Oren just going, oh, maybe they're going to the Devil Swamp. Ain't nobody would have thought about that. Not not one. I mean, they're going to Missis- they're near the Mississippi River. Okay, well, <laughs> there's a lot of things along that river, so sure. But, you know. Suspend your disbelief here. Back at the Sadusky house, Ross is upset about what has happened. Agent Hendricks offers her coffee and then questions her about what she was doing. Ross receives a video of Jess with Billy from Tasha, and Hendricks is now giving her his full attention. Guided by the ancient artifact, Billy and Casey lead the group while Jess and Raphael follow with a direction in the miles of swamp. Billy is eager to get searching. In the van, Liam has cracked his grandfather's code and learns that the group Billy is a part of is not a group of treasure hunters, but treasure destroyers. The leader of the group gets the title of Salazar. Meanwhile, at the airport, Ross and Hendricks have searched Billy's plane and found nothing. Not sure where to go, Ross calls Tasha, and she tells the FBI that it's most likely the Devil's Swamp. 
Ed is staying still, and Hendrix is concerned about what to do next. Pulling out his Tic Tac candy, Ross comes to the realization that Hendrix is the one who killed Peter Sadusky. The Tic Tacs had the same orange dye that was found in Sadusky's lab results. Pulling her gun on her boss, Hendrix is shocked at the accusation. accusation. Hendrix complies with her orders. As she lays out all the details of the case, Ross explains why Hendrix pushed her to arrest Jess. Despite Hendrix's denial, Ross has Hendrix handcuffed to a railing in the plane. Leaving Hendrix behind, Ross heads for the swamp alone. I texted you earlier in the week, I think it was Thursday or Friday, it might have been Friday, and I said, this week's episode of National Treasure has a lot of mind-blowing moments. This was the first one. Like, I, he was not even my suspect at all on any of this. I figured they had someone within the FBI. Again, I thought it was the boyfriend, but that's kind of like the misdirect they wanted you to believe. And this guy came out of left field, and even when she was detaining him, I was still like, uh, that seems a little too convenient kind of thing, you know. But, man. Say this, though. Her lack of experience as an agent shines through here because she doesn't make sure. Yes. Like, she she has him put his gun down, right? He's he's got handcuff keys, right? Like, what, he's what, an F, he's an agent with handcuffs himself. Yeah, he's going to have the keys. It's yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you're, what you're saying. It's her lack of experience, and sure enough, it that was some crazy conclusions. But it was very smart because they gave us a hint at the beginning with the bouquet of the orange dye wrappers from uh-huh. her, from Zeke. So that was I will say part. this. I will say this too, real quick before I know you got to finish up the recap, but they left one thing out. They mentioned that she gives Tasha her business card. They don't mention that her name on the business card is Hannah Betsy Ross. Right. What a what a nice callback that was. And she Hannah. even said, uh, she said, "Oh, she goes, is your name." Uh, she goes, "What's what's up with your name or something like that?" And she says, "Oh, um, whatever her name my was." Mother- my mother liked to yeah my like, mother like really liked to sew <laughs> i was like that's really cool that's a really smart way to do that but it's the smile that she gives her right yeah which makes me think that she's because my first reaction to that was she's working for ben mm. she somehow knows ben right but she kind of gave her this smile like yeah there's more to this yeah than you know. interesting oh man because it we're Again, we've we're not done with the episode yet, but I don't feel like we've got a lot to go. Like I, mean, I feel like we have a long way to go still, and we have one uh-huh. episode. So I'm like, how are we going to wrap this up? Usually, like the last hour of the movies or whatever, or just the to get the treasure. But we still have to wrap. We have to get everybody back together, find the treasure, and get out, and then do the whole little epilogue scenes. So like, I just don't feel like we've got an hour's worth. Like I feel like we've got more than an hour worth to go, but. Unless they do a cliffhanger and announce National Treasure 3. Right. Oh, God. Could you imagine? Oh, man. There'd be a lot of people upset about it. But then again, that'd be a perfect way to announce a new National Treasure movie. So, uh, let's see. Uh, Zeke tells Ross that she'll, uh, as she lays out that uh, Zeke tells Ross that she'll get killed if she goes alone. To Ross, she has no choice because she has no idea how high the conspiracy goes. Everyone is heading for the final showdown in Devil's Swamp. Which is a, you know, thinking about it, that's an awesome way to have the, to be the last battle. Now we're going to Devil Swamp to finish this out. Yeah, I like that. While Jess and Raphael are worried about what's to come, Billy tells them to cheer up. They're about to find the great Pan American treasure and prove its existence. Agent Ross comes out from cover and demands everyone to freeze. Just when things are looking good for Jess and Raphael, Hendrix comes from behind and stabs Ross through the abdomen with a sword. Raphael is a flashback to 20 years before his agent Hendrix Salazar kills Billy's brother. 
So that was my other mind-blowing moment was, I mean, I was even talking to Jamie about this scene because she doesn't watch this show, which I told her she needs to because it's really good. But, like, she got stabbed through the gut. You're not coming back from that. And I know it's a Disney Plus show and everything, but we see the life leave her eyes and everything. Like, she's laying on the ground dead. And I'm like, there's no way you're coming back from this. <laughs> it would have to be like a 0.01% chance, right? That right. it just missed every vital organ. Right. Misses her stomach contents and everything. Because, I mean, she, it was, that's a big sword. And she got run through the whole, all of it. So I'm like, uh, you know, there, I don't see you coming back from this one in, in okay. any sort of way. So that's my medical brain working. So we'll, We'll see what happens, though. Cause they, they don't always go by that, though. I know. That's that's Disney, too. But good last episode. I mean, we got a lot of mind-blowing moments right there at the end, and all dealt with uh, Agent Hendricks, which is weird to me. I wonder if we're going to get more of a backstory, too, because he's the one that didn't follow up on the tip for Ben stealing the Declaration of Independence, and I wonder if that's why he went in with this organization just because it cost him his job, well, it helped hurt his job and everything. So we'll we'll see where they pull from that. But that's just kind of random to me. I wonder too how the numbers have been doing. If they're if they don't announce a movie, they must be leaning towards a season two. Right. I, I can't imagine that. And, and the other thing, by the way, we've talked about this with the last couple episodes. We didn't see Riley. Nope, and IMDb, now, I'm telling you. Now, it could be that they filmed scenes for him in each of these last two episodes, and they cut them for time, right. because it was... So, I can't imagine we're not going to see him in the finale. Like, maybe he's already at Devil's Swamp when they get there. Right. Or like, like, not there, because they're there, but into the swamp. He's already, or maybe Ross you know, phoned him and told him and could be. Yeah. Mm. So he's already, cause they, they've still got to get on the boat and go out to the location. So. Right. Yeah, cause Maybe they got to follow that compass, which is a very cool looking compass by the way. So I really enjoyed that. Or here's a twist. Riley had prosthetics on to make him look like Hendrix. <laughs> and he and Ross, he and Ross staged the whole thing. Right, it's, it's a fake sword and just just blood the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know about that one. <laughs> All right, Chris, here we go. The Last of Us episode three, um, titled what? What was this one's title? I think it All was... Hail Nick Offerman. By the way, right? Good Lord, man, him and uh, which they'll put in here, Murray Bartlett acted their asses off this episode and good lord was it just perfect like it's not what i was expecting because i didn't really go the game wise this is like one of the biggest things i didn't go game wise and the the longer the week went i was okay with it the first that night up i was like "Ah," i kind of wish i would have done the game story because it would have made it a little bit more impactful of um this i'm just giving my overall what I thought about the episode first here. Like, because in the game, uh, what's his, Frank leaves because he's so tired of being with Billy. Um, or Bill, sorry. And he's, so he steals the, the truck battery and goes off and then gets bit and then kills himself after he gets bit. 
and he left Frank because well he left Bill because he was so annoyed by his characteristics and we almost got it at the first half of the episode I feel like like they tried to put that in there but then they came back but I almost went with I almost wanted that and then as the weeks gone on and I've thought about it more and seen more clips and stuff like that I was like oh no yeah I prefer this story than to the game story because it was a perfect little because this whole season is about love and the whole first game was about love you know love for X Y and Z uh, whereas the second one's all about revenge and I can't wait for season two but it uh it was a perfect story so let's let's get into the breakdown of it here TVLine.com by Kimberly Roots once again. Um, let's see. All right. The episode starts off with Joel and Ellie, so we will too. Ten miles outside of Boston, we see he builds a cairn and gives the teen the silent treatment as he quietly mourns Tess. But Ellie isn't having telling him, don't blame me for something that is not my fault. They set off on a five-hour hike, during which she asks him roughly 2,000 questions and no, he still will not give her a gun, which is going to be the theme for this, I think, until tonight's episode. They stop at a Cumberland Farms convenience store where he stashed up a few years for few. Ooh, few years ago. As he pokes around trying to remember exactly where his goods are, she finds a trapdoor in the back room and after opening it, drops herself into the dark and scary void below. She finds a box of ten points, uh, tampons before realizing that there has been an infected trapped under a bunch of center blocks in the corner. With a scientist's curiosity, she draws closer and uses her knife to slice open his forehead, then drives a weapon into the skull to kill him. When she eventually emerges, emerges brandishing the tampons like a trophy, Joel is none the wiser. Their walk continues, and as they pass the wreckage of a plane that crashed into the hillside, she's da uh, dazzled when Joel gruffly answers to her that yes, he did travel via airline back in the day. She said, dude, you gotta go up into the sky. Um, she says, all their conversation turns to how the cordyceps outright got started. Who bit the first person, and was it a monkey? Turns out no one really knows for sure, which we do because we saw the flashback for, you know, for the most of it. The prevailing guess is that the fungus... Oh, my ads just load in. The prevailing is that the fungus mutating got into the food supply via a basic ingredient like flour or sugar. Note, uh, side note, now would be a good time to think about back to the premiere and all the baked goods, pancakes and biscuits, oatmeal raisin cookies that Joel and Sarah didn't make or turned down, which is... Very, very well done. Um, you eat enough of it, you get infected, Joel theorizes, remembering that the outbreak happened on a Friday. By Monday, by Monday, everything was gone. When they get to a certain point in their journey, Joel wants to cut through the woods to save Ellie from having seen some pretty gruesome stuff, but she's curious and forges ahead anyway. Even she, however, is pulled up short by the large number of skeletons they come across in a field. Joel informs her that a week after outbreak day, soldiers evacuated small towns of the countryside and told people that they would be transported to the QZ. If that was true, provided there was room in the QZ. If not, the soldiers just executed them. She asked, these, these people weren't sick? No, probably not, Joel responds. Via their conversation, we also learned that dead bodies can't be infected with the fungus. And now on to the main event. We get our, our first flashback, flashback of the episode to September 30th, 2003, and one of those sweeps that Joel just referenced. An armed man hides in a sub-basement of a suburban home, which is rigged with security cameras, and those soldiers search the place they don't find him. He said, not today, you New World jackpot-wearing uh, freaks. That's what I'll say. He gloats. Once they loaded everyone else onto transport and left, he comes up into the house wearing a gas mask that he slowly removes. The man is a survivalist named Bill, played by, of course, the infamous Parks and Recs Offerman. And he's the only person left in this neighborhood. Which, this character is not that far off from his uh, character in Parks and Rec, by the way. Uh, it's, it's hand in hand. He looks very happy when he realizes... Mm -hmm. He's all alone, too. He's got nobody else to mess, you know, no one's else to bother him. 
<laughs> this reality does not seem to phase him. He steals gas, loots Home Depot, and, and barely blinks when the power grid goes down. After all, he's got a huge generator in his backyard. This was a huge prepper, and better off for it. Uh, that yard also features a garden, chickens, and a zillion defense mechanisms. When an infected approaches and trips a wire near the perimeter, he watches via camera as he gets shot down by an automatic gun. He says it doesn't get old while he's sitting there eating uh, dinner. Yeah, Bill's basically having the best pandemic ever. Four years later, an alert lets him know that someone is nearby. Bill goes outside to find a man has fallen into a pit on the land just outside the electrified fence that encircles his home. As Bill holds a gun on him, the Frank from White Lotus's uh, Bartlett explains that he was traveling with a group of 10 people from the Baltimore QZ, which is now gone. They were heading to Boston, but he's the only one left. I think the Baltimore QZ is a foreshadowing for stuff to come up soon. Um, Bill gives Frank a ladder and scans him when he climbs out. He's not infected. Frank asks him for some food. He says, this is not an Arby's, Bill asks. And then Frank says, Arby's didn't have free lunch. It was a restaurant. Uh, Bill begrudgingly allows Frank to come into the house and shower, which is the only part of the reason Frank is shocked when the meal uh, Bill prepares his gourmet keller complete with wine pairing. So the shirt that he has on during this scene, Frank does. Uh, Joel puts that same shirt on at the end of the episode. So nice little uh, I don't know, continuization there. As they eat, the differences of their personalities become even clearer. Frank is warm, talkative, and very open. Billy is wary, taciturn, and tense. When the food is gone, Frank is about to leave, but pauses when he notices a piano in the parlor. Bill acquiesces him to a request to his play. However, he stops Frank when he pulls out a songbook and gets a few bars into a rough rendition of Linda Ronstadt's Long, Long Time. So Frank gestures for him to play, and then I'll leave. Bill sets, uh, Bill sets, and from memory, plays a gentle, lovely version of the tune. So who's the girl, the girl you're singing about, Frank wonders when Bill is done. Bill replies, there is no girl. Frank quietly says, I know, putting his hand on Bill's shoulder and then leaning him in to give him a kiss. The effect is electric. Bill quickly stands and kisses him back. They're both crying a little as Frank asks Bill's name. Uh, then go take a shower, Bill, Frank says, kissing him again. When Bill emerges from the bathroom in a towel, Frank is waiting for him naked in bed. Uh, we learned that Bill slept with a girl a long, long time ago, but is pretty inexperienced and very nervous. Frank gentles him, promises to, promising to start with the simple things and murmuring that if they do what they're about to do, he's going to stay for a few more days. Bill shakily and happily agrees, and Frank kisses him, sliding down Bill's torso and out of frame. We immediately cut to three years later where the pair are having a loud argument. This is the argument I was talking about earlier. Frank wants to engage in some beautification of the house and the surrounding neighborhood because we're going to have a few friends, we're going to make friends, and we're all going to invite them to a visit. A skeptical Bill uh, wonders who's even left to be friend, and Frank says he's been chatting with a nice woman on the radio. Obviously, that nice woman is Tess. Uh, she and Joel are both uh, far less banged up and wary of life when we lost, last saw them. Still, Bill and Joel give each other the hairy eyeball throughout the visit. After a lovely meal, Joel says he understands Bill's desire to shun human contact, but the QZ has stuff Bill doesn't, like books and medicine, and suggests that they can help each other. Bill quickly reminds Joel that he and Frank are self-sufficient, and he says, I don't need you or your friend complicating our lives. Is that clear? Joel calmly points out the property's eventual weak points, like the fence, which is already starting to corrode and probably has about a year before it needs to be replaced. Joel says he can get them aluminum, which will last the rest of their lives, but Bill is still unmoved. Uh, both by that and by Joel's prediction that raiders, a.k.a. nefarious humans looking to steal and or do worse, will come at night at some point. Uh, they'll be quiet and armed, Joel says. Uh, we'll be fine, Bill states. Three years after that, uh, we get a sweet interlude in which Frank surprises Bill by showing him a strawberry patch that he planted. 
Bill grabs, uh, growls us about Frank trading one of his guns for the seeds. Frank assures Bill that he likes seeing him grow old because older means that we're still here. Bill admits, I was never afraid before you showed up. They give another kiss. The whole scene is a beautiful slice of the relationship, which lulls us into a false sense of security that is just shattered when raiders attack the house during a rainstorm. Frank w- uh, wakes up as the assault begins and realizes Bill is not in the house. He grabs a gun and rushes outside, where Bill is firing at the raiders in the front yard. Bill takes a bullet to the stomach, and Frank gets him inside, laying him out and trying to stop the bleeding, where Bill insistently gives his partner instructions on what to do, and he does. He tells him to call Joel, because he will take care of you. Bill takes a bullet because Frank comes outside. Correct. And what (laughs) is funny to me is, you know, Bill is this this very tactful, uh, very prepper, you know, armed man, but goes and stands out in the middle of the street (laughs) during this, not behind cover or anything else, but in the middle of the street. Doing fine. And then when he turns to answer Frank, that's when he gets hit Mm -hmm. with a bullet. But it's like... I don't even know if his shots did anything because everybody else was already dying from the fire and traps that he had put out. So many. Yeah, the fence <laughs> was electrified and the uh, they had flamethrowers. Yeah, just sitting there on a swivel. And I was like, oh, yeah. smart. <laughs> Which, by the way, was a, uh, a um, preview, if you will, for the movie that we watched. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely a lot of tones there the same. <laughs> The next time we see them, it's 10 years later, and we now are back in 2023. The good news, Bill survived his injury. The bad news, a degenerative disease has made Frank need to use a wheelchair, and his motor function skills have been deteriorating so much that he's having trouble doing things like painting or opening his pills. So one morning, Bill wakes up to, uh, to find Frank already up and sitting in a chair, something he admits took him nearly all night to accomplish. He said, this is my last day, he announces. Bill is devastated, but Frank says he's made up his mind. I've had more good days with you than with anyone else. Give me one more good day, he asks, outlining a whole 24-hour span in which they'll get new clothes at the boutique, they'll get married, they'll have dinner, and then he'll put all of his meds in his wine and go to bed, and I will fall asleep in your arms. Bill starts to sob. I can't, he protests, as Offerman kills me softly. Good Lord, this guy is good. But Frank quietly asks if he loves him, and Bill says yes. He said, then love me the way I want you to love me, he replies. Uh, so that's what happens. Both men don suits, exchange rings in, the, in rings in the parlor by the piano. Then they dine. Afterward, Br- Bill brings out two glasses and a new bottle of wine. He empties crushed pills into one glass, mixes it up, and hands it to Frank, who wonders whether it's been enough to do the job. Yes, he says. Bill says quietly, and Frank drinks it down at once. Bill follows suit, which is when Frank realizes, were there already pills in the bottle? Bill meets his gaze as he answers, enough to kill a horse. Oh, that got me. Like, because it's... It was so good. I didn't like because I didn't think that's how they're going to do. It. I thought they're going to have Bill still go with Joel and Ellie, but no, it's oh, it's beautiful. As uh, as Frank tries to absorb what's happening, Bill explains. He says he's got old and tired, and you were my purpose. For the record, Frank does not support the decision, but acknowledges that it is terribly romantic. They're in a good place when they retire to the bedroom for the last time. When Joel and Ellie arrive at the gate, Joel instantly knows something is wrong. The code still works to let him in, but the grass is overgrown at the house and plants are dead in their pots. Plus, the front door is unlocked. Inside, Ellie finds an envelope or address to whomever, who, to whomever, but probably Joel, with a key. The missive is dated August 29th, 2023. Ellie reads it out, line, out loud. If you find this, please do not come into the bedroom. He instructs Joel to take anything he needs. He says, I never liked you, but still, it's like we were friends. Almost. And I do respect you. 
He writes about how he'd been wrong about being happy that everyone else was dead because he found one person worth saving. That's why men like you and me are here. We have a job to do. And God help any mother freakers that stand in our way. He bequeaths all of his weapons and equipment with the instructions that Joel uses to keep them and Tess safe. The key is to a truck in the garage, and after Joel fastens a battery from Bill's supplies and ensures that Ellie's bite hasn't changed in any way, he announces he's got a brother in Wyoming who used to be a firefly, and that maybe Tommy can help her get to someone who can get her to the lab. But Joel's got rules for the travel, and she's got to agree before they go any further. He doesn't want to talk about tests or their histories. Ellie can't tell anyone about her condition. And rule number three, you do what I say when I say it. She promises to comply while the battery's charging. They shower and gather supplies. Ellie finds a gun in the drawer and stealthily stuffs it in her bag without Joel's knowing. When they get into the car, Ellie is really excited. It's her first time in a vehicle. He helps her with the seatbelt like the dad he is and teases her for her exuberance. It's like a spaceship, she cries, which is a... Very good. Play on to the second game. Then she puts a tape in the stereo and long line time starts playing as they drive away. Beautiful. This episode was so good. And man, I just, I thought that was just absolutely beautiful and a perfect way to tell that story with Bill and Frank. And even the, the at the end uh, with Neil and, um, God, I forget the Craig Mason who is the writer for the show, just, they were like, you know, this is a story we wanted to tell, and this is the one thing we'll change it up, because he, Neil Druckmann said, I won't allow things to be changed just for the, you know, X, Y, and Z. He said, but I felt like this story was what was needed, and yes, it was. I mean, we had, what, like two infected here, but, I mean, it was so good. And then, I didn't realize, so I've watched the, um, What's that show? Mythic Quest, which Craig Mazin directed and wrote in episode four. And it was a, uh, a prologue to the story of the Mythic Quest team. And that is a fantastic episode. It's a lot of people's favorites. And it's why, because Craig Mazin wrote it. And this is what his specialty is. It's like this prequel relationship stuff and absolutely killed it. Yeah. Um, I like the attention to detail too. Like, um, when, um, when when she when Ellie finds the uh, the box of tampons, mm-hmm. right? Because we know from what was it? It was episode one, I think. She's fourteen. Right. She's going to need that kind of stuff, and they haven't really addressed how they're acquiring those things. So like, even when she's loading up to leave, um, Bill and Frank's, she we see her stuffing like three or four rolls of toilet paper. Yeah. And a in a backpack, you know, and it's like. Those little details about the things that, in reality, if you were in this situation, you would have to right. find a way to acquire. It's nice that they work those in and they don't just gloss over it. Yeah, and it that's it's those small little details like that let you know they actually care about the show and the story that they're telling. I mean, but if I was Joel or anybody else, I'd be like, you know what? We're going to live in this, in this town. I'm just going to live in the house over, not in the house with the dead people in it. But, you know, I'm going to live here if it was me. But you know how that goes. It was interesting, too, that Bill put in the note. I left the window open so the house wouldn't smell. Smart. But you but you may want to stay out of the bedroom. Yeah. I'm sure it's a mess. So, you know? like, because he, they were both meticulous on how they kept everything. The yards mowed, the flowers nice and everything. It was, 
it was very well done. Like, cause I was wondering how far time had passed since that night. And then when Joel and Ellie get there and they do a good job of telling you, like, like the article said with the grass growing, the plants dead, the dust everywhere, all over the house, like a uh, heavy coats of dust, their food and wine still sitting on the table. I was like, they did a good job with this. And yeah. oh, man, this next so, episode's extra packed though. And it's going to be nuts. Do you think it was MS? That Frank had. Yeah, it had to be something like that because it it started. Herring's disease. Yeah, something. it started real low. I feel like, and it was working its way up. So I mean, it was, it it was definitely something like, and that's why he said there's not there's not a cure for this. There wasn't he a cure said, for yeah. this when we did back in 2003. There's not gonna be a cure for it now. And and both of their acting, Nick Offerman and oh, I forget the guy's name every time. But they did a, just a phenomenal job the whole episode. And it was to the point I was like, man, I really hate that we only have one episode with these guys. But that's it. Mm. Last of Us, episode three. Uh, next one is going to be, we're not even halfway through the season. And I'm telling you, this show has started to become one of my favorites of all time. Just period, outright. And It'll make your top five for the year. Yeah, it's definitely going to be my top five. I don't. There's not anything right now that's going to top it. So just outright. So... News week. I've got a lot of things, not a whole lot of articles to read, but I do have some quick fire notable news. Pennyworth, the origins of Batman's Butler, which is a ridiculous title, by the way, has been canceled after doing three seasons. So I know I talked about wanting to go back and I know we've talked about going back and watch it. I don't think I'm going to now because it got canceled and I'm sure it left on a hit, uh, cliffhanger. And then one that we care about, Hit Monkey, has been renewed for season two. But it's not associated with Marvel anymore. It's not used like uh, it's not having the association with Marvel stamped on it. So, strange. which That's is really strange. Yeah, I don't know why that is, but I maybe it's licensing of some sort. But I mean, it's like they're still going to be like in the credits, like um, the little Marvel logo. But it's not like stamped. You know how they do their their Marvel at the beginning. So it's very weird, and I don't know why. Like nothing I could find told why. But we're getting a season two, though, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of season two, that 90s show has been renewed for season two as well. Then my next news story, Rick Cosnett, Matt Letcher, and Jessica Parker Kennedy will return for the final season of Flash, which returns this week, uh, which for Rick Cosnett was Ebarthon, Matt Lesher was Ebarthon from the future, and Jessica Parker Kennedy is um, Bart. His sister Barry and Iris's daughter. I forget her name, but she's uh yeah. coming back. So, which is we've I feel we've got everybody coming back for this episode, which is needs to happen. And I feel like we should have more for this season. Like we need um, Legend of Tomorrow, which they still could be have surprises, but we're getting things from Oliver too. So I'm happy with all that. But speaking of CW, Superman and the Lois episodes cost. The CW five million dollars per episode to make. We're going to comicbookresources.com by Lee Fredick for this one. According to the Hollywood Reporter, the CW reportedly spends five million dollars an episode on Superman and Lois, putting the show's full season price tag at about seventy-five million. 
With the CW's new owner, Nextstar, looking to make the network profitable, the writing may be on the wall for expensive scripted programs like Superman and Lois. The CW is currently gutting its scripted divisions as the network prepares for a vast expansion to the low-cost reality programming and foreign scripted acquisitions. So far, the only CW original series confirmed to be returning next season is All-American. That doesn't mean that we could see the end of Superman and Lois because we know James Gunn has said he's a fan. Yes. And honestly, put it on HBO Max and just yeah. dump and just do it that way. And that could be how they do that going forward. I am very excited about this season. I need to, uh, what is it? It's coming out in March, right? March or April? I think we're getting close. But I need to go back and watch uh, season two. Yeah, March 14th. So I need to go back and watch the first and second season just to kind of get caught back up with it and watch it all in a, a binge order instead of the one-to-one episodes we did with their breaks. <laughs> Releases this week, which, you know, if it comes to HBO Max, though, Chris, no more breaks. It's just one a week, you know, one episode a week, so. Yeah. Releases this week, Wednesday, February 8th, the final season of The Flash Gumps on the CW. Thursday, February 19th, Harley Quinn, a very problematic Valentine's Day special on HBO Max. Friday, February 10th, Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur on Disney, on Disney Channel. And Sunday, February 12th, is the Super Bowl, which will let you guys know we will not be here for an episode next week. But enjoy your Super Bowls because it's the Super Toilet Bowl. It's Super Toilet Bowl, and I'm watching for ads, so <laughs> don't really care. I mean, I would hope the Eagles win, but that's about all I've got. So, yeah, fun stuff. I don't know who's gonna win. Probably be Kansas City, but someone leaked a screenshot claiming it's a uh, a scripted version of the game that's that the teams have been given that has the Eagles winning. So, yeah, well. We'll see what happens. It's been a week for all that. Yeah. <laughs> On to movies. Tyler, have you watched anything else this week? I did. Ant-Man. Did you watch that? I watched the first Ant-Man, and that's like the second or third time I've seen that movie. No, it's the third time I've seen it. It's okay. I need to watch Ant-Man the Wasp this week because next week is the Quantumania. But, oh, man, I'm excited. Phase 5. Phase 5. Phase 5. I've got to watch those two ahead of seeing the new one. Yeah. So it'll either be this week or next week. Well, Ant-Man the Wasp, I've only seen once. And that was the time we saw it in theaters. And I have not seen it again. So we like going to watch it again because my memory, this is not the best anymore. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> I feel you. All right. Our movie review for this week as we're running through Best Picture Oscar nominees is... Uh, all Quiet on the Western Front. This movie's been made twice before. Uh, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1930. I think that would have been 31 show. Um, I think it came out again in 79 with another version. They're claiming this as not a remake, but a readaptation of the novel. That's one way to do it. So uh, let's get into it. The plot is, and I'm pulling this from Wikipedia, so there's really, it's a community effort. <laughs> in 1917, three years into the First World War, 17-year-old Paul Baumer enlists in the Imperial German Army alongside his school friends Albert Kropp, Franz Mueller, 
and Ludwig Bem. They listen to a patriotic speech by a school official and unknowingly receive uniforms from soldiers killed in a previous battle. That was dark, by the way. Yeah, a well, <laughs> little bit, a little bit. The guy said, uh, oh, yeah, no, sometimes we just get the wrong size of people in. And I was like, oh, yeah. well, we showed the whole process of the guy dying and then the clothes being washed and treated, and now I'm back to you. I was like, oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah, also, this these first few scenes do a really good job of showing how no matter what side it is, the people who are in that country truly believe that their side's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's with any war, really. Yeah. 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 It's just what you're fed and proper. I mean, look what's going on in uh, Russia and Ukraine. I'm not going to get too much into it. But like when some of the Russian soldiers are captured by Ukrainian forces, they're like, no, we had no idea that this was even happening in our country. It's not even being talked about. We're just being thrown to the front line. I was like, yep. it's, I mean, it's history repeats itself, but yeah, they listen to a patriotic speech by a school official and unknowingly receive, oh, I just read that uniforms from soldiers killed in the previous battle after they're deployed in Northern France near La Malmaison. We're going to go with that. They're befriended by Stanislaus Kat Katzinski, an older soldier. Their romantic view of the war is shattered by the realities of trench warfare on the Western front and Ludwig is killed by artillery on the very first night. Mm -hmm. On November the 7th, 1918, German official Matthias Edersberger, weary of mounting losses, meets with German high command to persuade them to begin armistice talks with the Allied powers. And while Paul and Kat steal a goose from a farm to share with Albert Franz and another veteran, Jaden Stackfleet, with whom they've grown close behind the front in Champagne. Cat, who's illiterate, gets Paul to read him a letter from his wife and worries he will not be able to reintegrate into peacetime society. Franz spends the night with a French woman and brings back her scarf as a souvenir. On the morning of November the 9th, General Friedrichs drives Erzberger and the German delegation to a train bound for the forest of Compagne to negotiate a ceasefire. Paul and his friends go on a mission to find 60 missing recruits sent to reinforce their unit and discover they were killed by gas after taking off their mask too soon. Friedrichs, who opposes the talks, orders an attack before French reinforcements arrive. That night, Erzberger's delegation reaches the forest of Compagne, and Paul's regiment is sent to the front to prepare the, to attack the French lines. On the morning of November the 10th, Ferdinand Folk the Supreme Allied Commander gives 72 hours for the Germans to accept the Allied terms with no room for negotiation. And while the German attack takes the French front line after hand-to-hand -hand fighting but is routed by a combined arms counterattack with St. Shimon tanks, aeroplanes, and flamethrowers. And this was... Brutal. Dude, the whole... Like, that whole battle was rough. The, the first time you see the flamethrowers, you hear screaming and they show the French soldiers just standing at the top of the trench just yep. shooting flames down on the germans inside and it comes back later i'm sure we'll get to it here in a bit we see it again when one of the group of friends is killed but those flamethrowers are brutal yeah like and the, and the one guy that he was surrendering and everything and then they just lit him on fire and let him suffer and then like almost before he died they shot him and killed him i was like oh yeah, man, yeah, that it, it was rough. War's always bad. Yes, but seeing seeing what they did back then, because it was still so much hand to hand combat. Mm -hmm. 
it's just brutal. Yeah, because those those guns didn't shoot that far, and no. the rifles and everything. And it was even like the the tank scene was rough too. Like it showed you like the Germans like oh yeah we're winning, and then you see one tank roll up, and I was like oh this is gonna be rough, and then like a whole fleet of tanks just roll up, and I was like oh this is not good. And and you could see it on all the act. Yes, and one you know ran straight over a dude with his treads, and I was like, oh god, this is this is a brutal show. But I mean, this is this is really what happened. And and I haven't ever because you know usually when you watch any of these kind of war movies, you watch things that are from the Allied side, not necessarily from the the German losing side. And it was it was different, and I think good. I think everyone should really watch this, especially like in schools. But you know how gruesome it is. I don't know, but it was it was a very good movie to show like the depiction of that trench warfare, and yeah. man, it was brutal. When the tank runs over the guy, you can uh, the the effects that they used, what whatever they used underneath the tread, you can hear it pop. Yep, when it runs over him. That's it's so just... gross, man. <laughs> Franz is separated from the group. Albert is killed trying to surrender. Trapped in a crater in no man's land with a French soldier, Paul stabs him and watches him die slowly, becoming remorseful and asking for forgiveness from his dead body. Erzberger learns of Kaiser Wilhelm II's abdication and receives instructions in the evening from Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg to accept the Allied terms. Paul returns to his unit and sees them celebrating the imminent end of the war. He finds a wounded a wounded Jaden who gives him Franz's scarf. Paul and Kat bring him food, but Jaden, distraught at being crippled, fatally stabs himself in the throat using a fork Paul and Kat brought with the food. He didn't just stab himself. Yeah, he, he just died. multiple times just jamming yeah. it in. Like, he did not want to go back. No. Tore uh, his, his carotid yeah. wide open. Well, he, he knew they were going to cut his leg off. Yeah. And, I mean... To go through all that pain and be crippled because he wanted to come back and be a policeman and you know serve oh, yeah. his country that way. And it looked like he was already blinded when I, yeah. Uh, but you know, people may think, well, okay, there it sucks, they're gonna take your leg, but you know, better that than to be dead. But yeah, we get a glimpse of because their battlefield surgeries had not advanced beyond what we had in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So it was maybe you got some liquor to deal with the pain, and they just sawed the yeah. dilemma. Well, they they said uh, the one guy was screaming. They said, get this yeah. guy chloroform. And, yeah. I mean, that's also very fatal, too. I mean, if you don't get yeah. the dosing right on that, that doesn't work. So it's oh. – oh. So, yeah. Around 5 a.m. on November the 11th, Erzberger's delegation signs the armistice set to take effect at 11 a.m., after learning of the ceasefire, Paul and Kat steal from the farm one last time, but Kat is shot by the farmer's young son and dies as Paul carries him to the hospital. That was brutal. Like, I knew he was going to die. Like, if I showed the bullet wound, I was like, okay, that's fine. And they get left behind by that train or whatever. And then when you see him have him over his shoulders and he's carrying him, I was like, oh, that's a dead body. And yeah. sure enough, I mean, the medic wasn't very, the medic was very stoic and very cold about the whole thing. And he said, yeah, no, he, I mean, that's dead. He's like, yeah. He's, uh, he's like, no, he's just unconscious. He said, no, that's black blood. Yeah. He was shot in the liver. He's dead. And I was like, he's God. Uh, Friedrichs wants to end the war with a German victory and orders an attack to start at 1045 a.m. 
A despondent, battle-hardened Paul kills many French soldiers before being speared through the chest. Actually, it was through the back. Yeah. Because the guy just... Because he, like, he went in and threw his lower back and then went out right where his heart was. Yeah. Oh. By a bayonet seconds before 11 a.m. when the fighting stops and the front falls silent. A short time later, a newly arrived German recruit that Paul had saved in the combat finds Paul's mug-caked body and picks up Franz's scarf. And that's the end of the film. God, and it, and it, I love the movie too because it did the statistics at the end and showed how many people died and things like that. And I'm just like, it's that's crazy to think about. And, and World War is never beautiful or anything like that. It's, I mean, it's, I couldn't even imagine World War Three. And you know, everyone's always, you know, with the war with Russia and Ukraine, and everyone's like, you know, it could have happened, and things, X, Y, and Z, which, you know, it could, but that's, it's just horrifying to think about, because, I mean, that's, especially when you put statistics like that, it's just not fun. Yeah, I think, it, I forget the exact name, it was a few million people. Yeah, I think it was like 250 yeah. million by the end, or something like that. Um, But it did a good it did a good job of capturing the horrors of it. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me of Saving Private Ryan. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. That, that same thing. There's some I haven't watched. I haven't got to see Hacksaw Ridge yet. I, I need to see that one too. Uh, I'm putting those all on the list, Chris. But uh, that's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, this, this is the third nominee that I've watched. Now I'm an Elvis fan, so I'd love to see Elvis win. Yes. But I think I think this one might be a little in front of that for who I think will win. Yeah. Um, this is just, this might be tough to beat as far as a film and, 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 and what it shows. I, I didn't know if I, and I kept kind of looking at some of the supporting actors and, and, and everything to see if they kind of hid somebody in there because Hitler served in world war one mm-hmm. for Germany. And I didn't know if they were going to kind of put someone who... I was wondering that the whole movie, and I don't, I didn't ever look to see if they did either, but... but it was just a phenomenal job. A lot of the actors were, uh, were German. Um, they filmed it in the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. There's an old battlefield that they filmed it on. And, uh, yeah, the, the, apparently the tanks, like we see in the film... In real life, we're supposed to be able to go seven and a half miles an hour. Yeah. But they re- they never really reached that speed on the battlefield. So, What's terrifying, At, man. Turrets yeah. on the side of them for the side support. I mean, that's – I couldn't even imagine walking up on something like that. No. And you, you just see it approaching you, and it's that slow crawl. Yep. And there's nothing you can do. Because I mean, you just, can't – it's not like they made RPGs and rocket launchers back, you know, during World War One, so this can't do anything but throw grenades in it. Right. And I hope to get the tracks off the the treads. So. Yeah. Oh. Oh man, this, I mean, this film for me. Uh, I haven't rated it yet. I, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna give this. This this is. I, I might make this a five star. Really? All right. Hey, yeah. what did? Do you remember what you gave everything everywhere all, everywhere all at once last week? I can look it up here real quick. Uh, I'm trying to 
I don't know why I didn't start doing this two years ago, but I'm trying to keep track of all of our scores for all of our movies we watch. Three and a half. Three and a half, okay. I think we, we got the same thing, didn't we, last week? I think I'll, so. I'll need to double check mine. But uh, This one I gave three and a half, almost four. And it's, with war movies, it's one of those that I have to be in a certain mood to watch. And to for it to really resonate with me. But like once I got started with it, I was like, this is a damn good movie. And I could see why it's up for the Oscar. Um, <clears throat> the guy that played Paul, phenomenal job. Like he, even just the, the pit scene alone where he's with the, the French soldier he killed that was dying very, very, very slowly. And he, you know, he sits there and he was watching him die. And then he gets very remorseful, like Wikipedia said, and he just tried to save his life. He was, you know, wiping the dirt and blood off of his mouth. Poor guy tried giving him some water to try and help save him, but then it was drowning him. I mean, that's a, he didn't do anything. He was drowning him at that point. And, and this was his first uh, feature film. Really? Good. Is he up for a, a lead actor? I don't know. He may Maybe. I'm gonna look because he he definitely he needs to be. He should be. Um, but yeah, that that was a rough scene because it's like he just he just kept staring at the guy. Yeah. Just he's, he's gurgling, slowly dying, and I'm like, dude, if it bothers you that much, go put him out of his misery. Right. Oh, but good. He, he, it is up for uh, top visual effects. He just never does. He kind of lets him just suffer. And I don't think he meant to because he was hoping he'd survive. Right. But it's like he's, he's not. No, he's not up for a, an actor or anything. That sucks because yeah. that was a great performance. Mm-hmm. All right, next week um, we're going to HBO Max to watch The Banshees of Anna Sharon. Which is a comedy drama, so much different. <laughs> Alan Farrell. Is the uh, is the main star? I think he's up for best actor. For yes. Uh, so that'll be that'll be interesting. And a bunch of supporting actors are nominated. I think there's two supporting actors from this movie up for a role. Yeah. On to our news. Uh, the first one I'm kind of meh on. Yeah. Bad Boys Four has been <laughs> announced. Will Smith and Martin Lawrence returning along with directors Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah. Um, Basically, it's just going to be a slap fest. Yeah, um, it's just going to be another one. <laughs> they're going to have Will Smith slap everybody he comes in contact with. And at the end, Chris Rock's going to slap him. Right. So, I don't know. I, I, The first couple were good, and after that, I'm like, hey. Yeah. It's, there's no sequel at that point. Deadline.com's Anthony D'Alessandro. Here we go. Very good story, one that we want to talk about. James Gunn and Peter Safran unveil big DC plan with new movies for Batman and Robin, Swamp Thing, The Authority, Lanterns, TV series, and more. Now, this is I'm a gonna... very long article. So it's a very long article, and when we get down into um, actually naming the individual pieces and everything, or the individual properties, I want to stop after each one. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of give our thoughts there but uh in the midst of their third month as newly appointed dc co-bosses james gunn and peter saffron finally revealed their plans for an interconnected universe 
for the comic book giant spanning largely film and TV in a strategy unlike the Warner Brothers brand has ever had before. They also Ty- said, I don't think they put it in here, but quick side note, he's talking about gaming in this as well. Like in his video, he yeah. says he, all of it, he's be, I want all of it to be connected. And I'm like, yes. Which, mm. which I'm, I'm praying that that means we're going to get the actual actors voicing their yeah. characters. That's what I, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Entitled Chapter 1, Gods and Monsters. A portion of what will unfold between 2025 and 2027 includes five movies, including the gun-pinned Superman Legacy, a new Batman and Robin title, The Brave and the Bold, a Swamp Thing feature, and films centering around Supergirl and the deeper universe DC Rogue Squad, The Authority. On the TV side, there's an animated series, Creature Commandos, written by Gunn, the Peacemaker spinoff live-action series Waller with Viola Davis, a Lanterns series Booster Gold and Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of Waller, which has some of the returning cast of Peacemaker, there isn't any talent or directors attached to these projects. Saffron and Gunn conceived their grand design with an assembled writer's room who riffed off the latter's basic ideas. That group including Christina Hudson, Jeremy Slater, Drew Goddard, Crystal Henry, and Tom King. Um, Overall, the game plan is two movies a year, two series for HBO Max, and what is an eight to ten year plan. As for which projects are right for TV and which for film, Gunn said it's all story-based. To us, storytelling's 100% king. So if it's a story that's more complicated like The Lanterns or Waller's story, or has more of an independent TV vibe like Booster Gold, that's more suited for television. It has to do with tone, storytelling, and if it's something that we can tell in two hours and ten minutes, or, or it's something that we need seven, eight, or nine hours for. That is the correct mindset to go about this with. Yeah. And, oh, it might, man. It might seem like it's all deep, deep universe stuff, stay, straying from the core Batman and Superman of it all, but there's a method to gun in Saffron's madness. One of our strategies is we take our diamond characters, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and we use that to help prop up other characters that people don't know, like what happened with the Guardians of the Galaxy in some way. Taking teams like The Authority, which as I know is just a spectacular idea for a film that's a completely different take on superheroes, because it's really connected to Superman. It's about, it's about to use those well-known properties to help lead into lesser-known properties, says Gunn. Um, we're going to promise everything from our first project forward is going to be unified. Mm. But we've gotten very lucky for the next four projects, added the filmmaker on the slate that was previously shepherded by former DC boss Walter Hamada. Those being Shazam, Fury of the Gods, due March 17th, The Flash, due June 16th, the latter which Gunn says resets everything. I will say here, Flash is probably one of the greatest superhero movies ever made, Gunn added. That, that, we knew that's why The Flash was being stuck around, because it gives a good reset and jump off point. But that little statement right there, I will say here that Flash is probably one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. And I'm just like, oh, you know, but you have, what's his name? Yeah, too bad, too bad you don't have a different star in there. Right. Um, then wiping away any doubt about the future of Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, Jason Momoa's Aquaman, and Zachary Levi's Shazam... Saffron emphasized, these four movies are terrific. There's no reason why any of the characters or the actors that play in those characters are not part of the DCU. There's nothing that prohibits that from happening. 
will incorporate characters from the past, but mostly will cast anew, added the producer of Aquaman and Suicide Squad. Ditto for the creators of these recent projects. Gunn and Saffron would love to reteam with Flash filmmaker Andy Muschietti. Currently, James Wan is focusing on finish Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Then there's Blue Beetle on August the 18th that sort of has its own world and fits in directly into our DCU. Followed by Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom on Christmas Day, which leads into the universe that Gunn and Saffron are mapping out. As everyone here probably knows, the history of DC is pretty messed up. There's the Arrowverse, there's the DCEU, which then split, became the Joss Whedon Justice League at one point, became the Snyderverse at the other <laughs> point. There was Superman and Lois, there's the Reevesverse, there's all these different things, Gunn said at the top of the session. Even us, we came in and did Suicide Squad, and that became Peacemaker, and all of a sudden, Batmite is real is a real guy. It's never been set up, said the Guardians of the Galaxy filmmaker and Marvel Studios vet. No one was minding the mint, Gunn criticized. They were just giving away IP like they were party favors to any creators that smiled to them. What if Todd Phillips sequel Joker, Foily Adu? and Matt Reeves' Batman sequel, an HBO Max Penguin series. As previously reported, Saffron confirmed such first, such veers from his and Gunn's plans will be labeled clearly as DC Elseworlds, just like the comics do. Also still in the works, J.J. Abrams' Ta-Nehisi Coates' Black Superman project, a draft is being waited upon. The bar is going to be very high for projects outside of the DCU, asserted Saffron. Um... I'll go ahead and finish reading this bit leading into the shows. It's not that much left. Winking at the history of previous DC films, read David Ayer's Suicide Squad and Snyder Whedon's Justice League. Productions were known for their reshoots, Gunn promised. People have become beholden to dates, to holding dates, to getting movies made no matter what. At the end of the day, I'm a writer at my heart, and we're not going to make movies before the screenplay's finished. And if that means our plan has to shift a little bit, it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. We're not going to be making movies and putting hundreds of millions of dollars in a film where a screenplay is only two-thirds of the way done, and we have to finish it while we're making the movie. I've seen it happen again and again, and it's a mess. I think it's the primary reason for the deterioration in the quality of the films today versus 30 years ago. Gunn mentioned how on Suicide Squad he did no reshoots, and on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 he did a day of picking up, and it's because of having screenplays prepared before we shoot. I don't want to get into this massive spending of hundreds of millions of dollars on reshoots. The TV and film projects in the first portion of Gun and Saffron's Gods and Monsters include Preacher Commandos, an animated TV series. Animation will lead into live action and back into animation, said Gunn. Awesome. It's a way to tell, yeah, it's a way to tell stories that are gigantic and huge without spending $50 million on an episode. Gunn has written this, it's done. Creature Commandos is comprised of military superhumans, including a human leader, a werewolf, a vampire, Frankenstein's monster, and a Gorgon. Gunn pointed out Weasel from his Suicide Squad will be on the show. <laughs> this band of misfits were introduced in Weird War Tales number 93 from November of 1980, created by J.M. DeMatteis De and Pat Broderick. This is going to be a good one, uh, just because James Gunn has written it as well. A lot of these, when I watched the initial video of James Gunn just outlining everything, a lot of these I was like, I don't know how I feel about it. But seeing the history and him going a little more in depth on each one, I'm like, oh yeah, dude, you know what you're doing. And you have set this up to be 
what it's needed to be. And I'm excited. This creature commandos is going to be fun. It's going to be, I mean, he's got this love for putting weasel and everything and I'm okay with it. So it's, I think that's going to be fun. A vampire werewolf, Frankenstein monster and Gorgon. So absolutely. There's only a couple of these that I really have an issue with. Mm. So the creature commandos is not one of them. Uh, Waller, HBO Max live action series, the spinoff of Peacemaker. We're using the same actors. This is a continuation of Peacemaker. I'm working on Superman, so we can't do Peacemaker season two. We're working on Waller in between, Gunn told the room. Crystal Henry of Watchmen is writing the show along with Jeremy Carver. Yes. Creator of Doom Patrol. Yes. While none of the features are rated R, the TV series could lean into being more adult. Having Jeremy Carver on to be doing this is going to be, because you see what he does with Doom Patrol. So, I mean, Waller, I mean, it's going to obviously lead heavy into her suicide squads and kind of her backstory, I'm sure. And he knows what he's doing with teams. So, I'm really excited. And Watchmen is apparently a really good show, too. I wonder if we'll get any of the same actors from Doom Patrol coming Uh, over to be a part of it. I don't think he said anything about Doom Patrol or if he's ever said anything about Doom Patrol or Titans yet. Like, I, I, I want that to be interconnected, really, but... Yeah, we'll see what happens. Superman Legacy feature. This is really the start of the DCU, says Seffron. The project was already announced by the duo with Gunn writing. No directors attached, but Saffron was elbowing Gunn yesterday that he'd really like him to helm. The release date is July the 11th, 2025. It's not an origin story. It focuses on Superman's balancing his Kryptonian heritage with his human upbringing. He's the embodiment of truth, justice, and the American way. He's kindness in a world that thinks of kindness as old-fashioned. Um, I'm down for it. I mean, we really don't need another how does Superman come to be. If you want to know, watch Smallville, watch any of the other Superman movies. Uh, but I'm very curious because it, it takes it's a younger, it's not an origin story, but it is a younger Superman. So we're still getting you know his first, villains and things like that i'm really excited about this especially with this being james gunn's baby is what you make which you know they mentioned the article that saffron was wanting gunn to direct it in helm which i completely agree so we'll see what happens with it what what it sounds like to me is it's maybe within his first year or so in metropolis yeah and he's trying to figure out all, all the different things that you see in some of the earlier projects where he's like, I've got to find a place to duck into so I can, mm-hmm. you know, take my Clark Kent clothes off and come out in my Superman uniform. Right. Um, I'm curious about who is going to play him now because, I mean, it's... I mean, you got Tyler Hecklin. Who could... <laughs> I would love that. And he could still play that young dude too. Like, oh, yeah. just bring him back. Lanterns, HBO Max live action series. Our vision for this is true detective, Saffron says. It's terrestrial based. It's got two of our favorite Green Lanterns, Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart. It plays a really big role in the main story that we're telling across our film and television. This is a very important show for us. Saffron specified this version is different from one that Greg Berlanti had in the works, the latter's being a space opera. I'm interested in it. Yes. I'm curious because they are space cops. But, you know, their primary home, the primary sector is, was a sector four or something like that. And it's Earth. 
So I'm very curious to see how they do it. But they have your two heavy hitter Green Lanterns of John Stewart and Hal Jordan. So, which is awesome because it's gonna be like a a true detective crime show with the rings and being space cops. So this is gonna be really exciting. Uh, I'm very curious to see, you know, when this happens. But I'm going to be a big. I'm a huge Green Lantern fan. I don't I don't have it in frame, but my Green Lantern poster is over here. So I mean, it's it's really exciting. Not the comic book, not the movie. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I think we'll get Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan. No, no, nah, I think that time's passed. <laughs> I don't think he'll touch that with a ten foot pole either. <laughs> Next up, the authority feature. There's great Wildstorm characters that were popular for a long time, and we're incorporating them into the DCU. Says Gunn. He loves the property because it's a mix of anti-heroes who take matters into their own hands despite what governments advise. A basic story is being written out. The Authority was created after Stormwatch, a planetary defense force against aliens, was destroyed. The former member of that group, Jenny Sparks, created the Authority with her Stormwatch black teammates Swift and Jack Hawksmoor. The team includes the Engineer, Angela Spica, Gerowyn Thorndike, the latest Doctor, Apollo and Midnighter. Midnighter, so, I know from the JSA, but these other characters and the Authority, I know zero about. So when he announced this, and he's really excited about. It, like I've got no idea who any of these characters are. But then again, Peacemaker, Suicide Squad, Guardians of the Galaxy, all same thing. No idea what any of them were. So, and he seems very proud and very excited about this one. So, we'll see. It's tough to get excited about that one, not knowing anything about Correct. it. That's one of that's, that's one of the two that I was like, okay, at relaunch, are you wanting to put time into that? Right. Should you be going towards your heavy hitters and then kind of branching off? Yeah. That's that's should my it, opinion. So. Or should you consider like a a Green Arrow movie, or right something? Start that building your Justice League up a little bit. Because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if he's planning to do like an Avengers Justice League style thing yet, but I mean this is eight to ten years, and we don't have anything yet, so right. we'll see. Next, I guess. next up, Paradise Lost HBO Max live action series. It's going to be a Game of Thrones story. I love this about Themyscira. The home of the Amazons and the birthplace of Wonder Woman. This drama is really about the political intrigue behind the society of all women. How did that come about, says Saffron? What's the beautiful truths and the ugly truths behind all of that? And what's the scheming like between all the power players in that society, adds Gunn. The series will take place before the birth of Diana, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. I'm okay with this one. And with them describing it as a Game of Thrones story about the mascara, I'm like, again... I'm, I like this, and I'm really excited to watch this show. Uh, of course, there's more content for us to talk about in a review as well. But I'm like you. I'm like what you said. The last uh, series is this really where you should be focusing your your stuff right now? But. The, the only thing that makes me think different about this is it is setting up the the backstory for the society that gives us one of our yeah. big members well, well in themiscara there's a bunch of villains and things that come out of it anyways and out of that lore and we do see it a lot throughout your comic books and things like that so I'm, it's it's it makes sense yeah. but should you I, my thing is should we really be going to a prequel series right now 
but I feel like it makes a lot more sense than the authority. Correct. <laughs> I, I agree with you there. All right. Here's one. I'm really excited about this one. See, I'm not. Oh. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> the Brave and the Bold feature. This will be Gunn and Saffron's version of the DCU Batman outside of what Matt Reeves already created. The movie will feature Batman and his son Damian Wayne as Robin, who is a little son of a bitch, Bill's Gunn. Assassin murderer who Batman takes on, who's Batman's actual son that he doesn't know exists for the first eight to ten years of his life. It's a strange father-son story about the two of them and based on Grant Morrison's run of the Batman. Added Saffron, this is going to feature other members of the extended Bat family. Mm. Just because we feel like they've been left out of the Batman stories in the theater for far too long. Gunn said that Reeves' Batman 2 script is still in the works, and once that comes to fruition, it's something we'll have to balance out with this movie. The duo revealed that Reeves' Batman 2 will be October 3rd, 2025. God, two and a half years, man. While Robert Pattinson is the Dark Knight for Reeves, Gunn and Saffron will be seeking a new actor to play Batman for The Brave and the Bold. While they floated Ben Affleck's name again as a director in the DCU, they didn't name him for a project. So here's my issue with this. You go back to any Batman live-action property. We have never gotten a proper Dick Grayson mm. storyline. Correct. Chris O'Donnell played him in the 90s. That was not very, very... It, the story wasn't very good. No. He was already too old to be Dick Grayson when he joins Batman. So he's never gotten his due in live action. Um, we've never gotten Jason Todd outside of Titans getting his due in live action. We've never gotten Tim Drake getting his due in live action. And we're skipping on ahead to the fourth Robin for no good reason. So hear me oh. out on this. Because he says... Uh, Saffron said this is going to feature other members of the extended Bat family. Mm -hmm. What if we get our guy uh, Brandon Thwaite from Titans make a Nightwing appearance? Because by the time Damien comes around, Nightwing's already established. Yeah, I so, mean that's fine, but that's Nightwing. Yeah, we're not getting Dick Grayson right. joining Batman, the training, everything that he has to go through. We need that story. Yeah, and we're we're just not getting it. So which I know lets, he... lets us know we're not going to get that either. Right. Um, Gunn did say in a, in a separate thing I saw that Damian Wayne is his favorite Robin. Mm -hmm. he's, which is why he's fun, but I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, it's why he's skipping ahead to this because he wants to tell that story. I get that. Yeah. But I want to see the other stuff. Yeah, there's, there's so... three iterations of Robin that it looks like it's being skipped in the DCU at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, uh, and they're part of some really good stories. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, you can't tell the killing joke right. with Damian Wayne. It's already happened. Right. We're, we're skipping over all this other stuff. So I, I do wish that they were starting there and working their way towards Damian Wayne. I mean, I would love uh, a show just called The Robins, you know, and it's just a, all of them. They're established right. at different times and stuff like that, and then all have to work together. Mm -hmm. Batman gets kidnapped or something. It's just called the Robins. So. Batman gets kidnapped and they all just go, eh. Yeah, yeah he's fine. <laughs> Next up, Booster Gold from HBO Max TV series. It's about a loser from the future who uses future tech to come back to today and pretend to be a superhero. Imposter Syndrome as a superhero describes gun. 
This could be fun. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. And he, it's a, it could be written as a peacemakery show as well with that humor put in. So it's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm yeah. excited for that one. For, you know, eight years from now. <laughs> also excited for this one. So I'm curious how they, how they work it. Supergirl woman of tomorrow, a feature based on Tom King's comic book series from 2022 in our series, we see the difference between Superman, who was sent to Earth and raised by loving parents from the time he was an infant, versus Supergirl, who was raised on a rock, a chip off Krypton, and watched everyone around her die and be killed in terrible ways for the first 14 years of her life, and then came to Earth when she was a young girl. She's much more hardcore, not exactly the Supergirl we're used to seeing. I'm, I'm down. That's... Yeah. I'm going to have to read some of these Tom King books because he, Tom King is one of these, I forget what they called it. It's not a brain trust, but it's all the group of people that's all working on this together with him. He's, he calls it something, his team that he's using. Oh God, I wish I remember what they were called, but uh, Tom King's one of them and he's a phenomenal comic book writer. Next up, the Swamp Thing feature. I'm in on this. It will investigate the dark origins of the creature, tonally different from Superman, Batman, and Robin. The belief here from the duo is darker character will interact with the mainstream DC characters. There was a Swamp Thing movie back in 1982 starring Adrian Barbeau, which also spawned a 1989 sequel. Then there was a 2019 CW series. Added Saffron of the project and how it relates to the rest of the slate, it's important to point out that in these stories, although they're interconnected, they're not all tonally the same. Each set of filmmakers bring their own aesthetic to these films, and the fun is seeing how these tonally different works mash up in the future. Gunn elaborated, everything doesn't always look the same. Everything doesn't always have the same expression. Different artists bring remarkably different looks, feels, and tones. This is not the Gunverse. That, he indicated, is a lesson he took from his Marvel experience. What I found through Marvel, what wasn't exciting, was when movies were tonally the same. What was exciting was when you had something like Guardians come out and everyone was like, how is this raccoon going to be dealing with this god of thunder? That's going to be weird. Some rules the duo will abide by in creating their universe. Anyone cast on the DC TV side as a character will also respectively play that character on the film side. No one actor will play two parts, hence Momoa is Aquaman going forward, not Lobo. What does the thrifty, cost-cutting Warner Discovery CEO David Zaslav think of this plan? Will he go cheap on DC? Not so, per Saffron. Their investments con content creation is huge, says the DC co-boss. There's no question we have the resources. We're going to put these scripts together, get our directors, and then discuss with Zaslav what the appropriate spend is on each of these. I have zero doubt they'll commit appropriate funds on each one, asserted the Conjuring franchise producer. Stakes are enormous, adds Saffron. It was a brand in chaos, and it's an opportunity to build an extraordinary standalone studio with the best IP and the best stories in the world. Gunn released a video today in which he went over much of this for fans, and there's a link to the Twitter video. So, hence, Momoa is Aquaman going forward, not Lobo. And it's still up in the air, but they, they have not released as it were gal gadot right so she could still be wonder woman which i am still okay with just that yeah. that last movie just needs to be struck from the record <laughs> I yeah think. yeah I, I think it will be i think yeah. 
I think the Aquaman and Wonder Woman movies that exist will be like, hey, these were made before. Uh, that's not the story we're telling. So it it makes me curious as to whether Patty Jenkins will be brought back. Right. And would she want to come back and retell a Wonder Woman story different from the one that she told before? Right. So, I mean, it's... A lot of questions still up in the air, but we do have our next 10 years of DCU content, which yeah. some are different, but some are good. We'll, we'll find out, you know what I mean? <laughs> really? For 10 years? That's not a lot. Mm-mm. Two movies and two shows a year. Yeah. So, I mean, they haven't even done anything yet. I think the, the soonest thing... Oh, no, I guess that's Bat, That's Batman. Matt Reeves is Batman. That's in two years. On October 2025. Don't know why it's not coming out sooner, but what do I know? So, word. We finally have answers, though. So, a few. (laughs) All right. Um, Releases this week Magic Mike's Last Dance. That's Tyler's favorite movie. It's coming out February the 10th. Watching that live in cinemas. (laughs) And And on Netflix, February 10th, Your Place or Mine. I don't uh, know what I, that is, but it was uh, it was like one of the only things on there. So I was like, okay, well, I'll put it on there. there you go. <laughs> Chris, have you been playing any games this week? No, just the usual stuff when I have played. I downloaded and played Hi-Fi Rush, which is the Game Pass game that's taken everyone by storm. It's a rhythm game. It's actually pretty fun. Artwork's really cool. Story's pretty good. It's a short little 8 to 10 hour game. I've uh, played it some. I've started on Skyrim again, continuing my save, just because, you know, I own every iteration of that game, but VR, and just can't stop playing. It's just my comfort game to go back to before the big game comes out this week. But I've got a big news article here that eh, everyone kind of saw the writing on the walls on this, which I'm very curious to see the future, and we've talked about this for the past two years. But the big three... Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo will not be at E3 this year. I'm going to IGN.com, and this is by Cat Bailey. E3's first physical event in four years is supposed to be a triumphant return for the trade show, an opportunity to recapture some of the excitement of past conventions, which historically have been major showcase events for the games industry. However, it appears that when E3 2023 hits the LA Convention Center in June, it'll be without the three of its most important draws. IGN has heard from multiple knowledgeable sources that Xbox, Sony, and Nintendo will not be a part of E3 2023 or have presence on the LA Convention Center show floor. This information comes on the heels of Xbox announcement last week that it would be returning to LA for its annual summer showcase while declining to confirm whether it would be a part of the show itself. Speaking with IGN last week, Xbox CEO Phil Spencer said the platform holder is timing its showcase with E3 at a moment, uh, convening for press and even consumers at the event, meaning it's likely to roughly align with the event itself. Spencer also stressed Xbox public support for E3 and the Entertainment and Software Association. However, IGN understands that Xbox won't have a booth on the show floor. It's, then it goes on in some more little quotes, but interesting. E3, you know, didn't really have... I don't think they had a year last year. Or they... Was it last year, the all-virtual one. But it wasn't anything crazy. I don't... I forget last year's. But um, this, this does not look good for the ESA. Because 
your biggest draws aren't going to be there. So who are you going to have? You're going to have like Ubisoft, maybe EA. I don't actually. I don't see EA being there with them. I see EA doing their own thing. So what you have Ubisoft and like some other indie titles and stuff like that. So it's not going to be worth renting out the LA Convention Center. Right. It's what's the point if you're not you're not having any of the big three. It'd be something right. to say you know we're having one or two, but not having any of them. Yeah, is uh, is different. So I mean, may, maybe maybe they could try and go PC heavy, right? No, and and but that's not gonna no. draw people. No, you could have as many indie events as you want there, but it's not. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure Ubisoft will be there, but what are they going to show? I mean, they don't really. I mean, Assassin's Creed Mirage is the only thing, and then uh, Skull and Bones, which is going to be a train wreck. I foresee happening. I just don't want that game to come out. Here's the other thing, though, right? With these studios, um, if. PlayStation, Nintendo, and Xbox say, look, we're wanting to feature the reveal of this game on our own thing, so we're asking you not to go there and show it. Right. You know, you're, you're going to go where your bread's buttered. Yeah, right? you're going to go where your publication's at. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I think E3's dead in the water. Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to fail real big this year, and they're just going to disband ESA. Or they're going to have uh, Jeff Keighley combine with him and finally bow down. Not really bow down. It's not that's what the phrase I'm looking for, but kind of concede. Not wrong, say, though. Yeah, right. And concede and be like, hey, you know, let's just combine it and we'll be a part of Summer Games Fest. If you want to bring it under E3, we can. Be, but this is not this is not it. So I think I think you stick with Summer Games Fest because to me the E3 brand has become damaged yeah it's too, too damaged to salvage at this point yeah so yeah we'll see what happens but i mean my favorite time of the year is in june we'll we'll see what happens though notable new releases this week only one and it's the one that i'm going to lose a lot of time and hours into because there's hogwarts legacy for pc ps5 xbox series on february 10th which is a friday i have to work this weekend as well so i just just taking hours away from that, but early copies have been given out to people like overseas in Europe and some mom and grop shops here in the U S and people are going to Reddit and say, Hey, this is how many hours I've already played. Ask me anything. And people have been asking questions and all of the answers are exactly what I want to hear. And it does like, it's not a broken game. I've been worried because we are coming up on the week of release and we don't have any reviews yet from the press. Although I've been told it's Monday is when the reviews come out. So like you know, usually when you get closer and closer to your release and you don't have any reviews out, it's usually not a good sign, nine times out of ten. But from what I'm seeing and the multiple people have been talking about their experience and how damn good of a game this is, I am worried for my mental health because I love Hogwarts, I love Harry Potter, and uh, this is the game that everyone's been wanting to be made. And single player collectibles you know away uh, they said like 40 to 50 hours for the main campaign uh, 80 plus for 100% complete it which is what I will be doing and you know they pushed back a Jedi survivor back another month so it gives me time to play this 
the games like that are ones that I I get. I I end up putting them on my list whether I end up playing them or not. Because mm. it's it's the it's the sort of thing that I would like to play. Yeah, it's pick your own house, get to decorate your own room of requirement where you could put your own beast and stuff into. Man, I can't. Oh, I just can't wait for this game and. Next time we come on air, I'll be all raggedy because I hadn't gone to work or done anything and showered or anything. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to the episode of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to share on all your favorite social media platforms and forget to rate and review it on whatever podcasting apps you use. Uh, social media, you can follow the Nerdwide account at nerd underscore wide on Twitter. You can follow me personally at Ty underscore Haynes. And you can follow Chris at MathTN7 on Facebook. You go to search bar, Nerdwide Podcast, Nerdwide, Nerdwide.com. We're always the first thing that pops up. Follow us on either one of those, and you get to get some. Uh, that's where we, our episodes usually post when they go live. If you're not already subscribed to another thing, but you should be subscribed, so it doesn't really matter. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching and listening. We really hope you enjoy this episode. We finally got some answers from the James Gunn and Peter Safran uh, DCU. And we hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you're excited about for, from that down in the comments. And let us know what you thought of this week's movie of All Quiet on the Western Front. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you in two weeks after the Super Bowl. And the Eagles are going to win. That's all I'm going to say about it. But ladies and gentlemen, we will see you then. Later, guys.